Welcome to My Name is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, this is Pete Bauer. And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And this is My Name is Not Steve. We are still not named Steve. Nope, we are storytellers that talk about storytelling, Dorothea. Occasionally. (laughs) Well... I like to think we talk about it. Well, no. Actually, that's not true. We talk about it all the time. Yeah. Just sometimes with a microphone in front of us. Well, that is true. Yeah. And that's not even for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I'm at the, <laughs> when I'm at the office. You just have a microphone. I just me. have a microphone. You know, you were saying to me just the other day, because we had this moment where we went to this family gathering, and <laughs> there were these... These conversations going on, and we probably, I don't know, for a good like two or three minutes, we had constant, nonverbal, complete understanding communication going on. Yeah, there was a lot, of, a lot of telepathic looks going back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Which was sad, because we, we had reached a point we didn't even need to talk. <laughs> and so, on the drive to work the next day, you were like... Maybe we spend too much time together because we're not even really talking when we're talking. Well, I think I've actually talked about this on this podcast before, but because I grew up with you as my father Mm -hmm. and you always just understood what I meant Mm because you knew how my brain functions and you know how I think and, and where I'm going most of the time. Yeah. I didn't really learn how to explain myself very well to other people because you would just explain me to other people for me. <laughs> so when I went away to college, people would ask me questions and I'd start to explain something and they'd still not get it. And I would get really frustrated because I'm like, how are you not getting this? I'm making this so simple. Don't you see this look? Don't you see? <laughs> that says everything. Don't you see the look in my eyes? Don't you know the colors of my soul? Like... Can't you just understand? No, they didn't. And, uh, they That's didn't. because they didn't love you like I do. That's what it is. Mm. Nah. Okay. No. <laughs> anyway, it was kind of funny. So we do spend a little too much time together, probably. And our solution to that was to spend more time together and to record another episode of this podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um... Eventually, we're going to kill each other, yeah. I think. <laughs> we're just one bad fight away. I don't know. No, because well, here's the deal. It would be impossible. <laughs> you would survive. <laughs> Actually, it would be really difficult because we'd know where we're going to... We'd both know what's going to happen. <laughs> we'd know what... Like what I was going to do, you would know what you were going to... It would. You still wouldn't be able to get away, It would though. be like that fight scene in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World between <laughs> Milton Berle and that British guy. <laughs> Oh, man. If you guys haven't seen that movie, check it out. Awesome. It's very long, but it's very funny. Yep. Okay, so... I still think I'd win. Well, uh, uh, no doubt. I have no... (laughs) Yes. There we go. I'm glad you agree with my power. So, Dorothea... (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) That is settled settled science. It's like global warming. So, anyway, listen... No, because this is a fact. (laughs) So this episode, we want to talk about page turners, and we want to use a movie, actually, which is kind of weird, to explain putting together page turners. But before we do that, let's do a quick update. Do we ever talk about books on this show? Yes. Oh. Mine. We're about to. (laughs) Take it away. So as I've been writing Gods and Martyrs, I realized that I needed to introduce the main villain a little earlier. So my initial thought was that this it's it involves a terrorist act so my initial thought was that the idea of a terrorist act would be understandable and villainishness 
Ness enough that you're an author. I know. <laughs> a master of language. And that I would be able to elicit the sort of fear that, that you want readers to get from a villain. But then as the more I thought about it, there is a main villain in this and, and Gabby interacts with them. And originally it was going to be much later in the story when she gets face to face with this person. But I thought that that was, as I was going through it, I just thought that was a weaker choice. So what I've been trying to figure out is where to put that as early in the story as possible to make sense. Because, I mean, my initial thought was just wrong, really, I think, is that the, the reader needs to identify, and as we talked about in just a few podcasts ago, about the villain needs to be stronger, faster, better, and everything. And the only way you really do that is it can't be this nebulous sort of group or event. Usually, it, you know, it's better to give them someone specifically to identify with. I completely agree with that. I was just in my head thinking about Die Hard, where you have Hans, who's the main villain, even though you have a whole group of terrorists. Die Hard was on television recently, and yeah, it's, it it's pretty much been on my mind ever since. Yeah, and actually, you could think of Gods and Martyrs as, as Gabby's version of Die Hard, really, in a lot of ways. yippee ki It's the greatest moment. So anyway, so it's paused my writing a little bit because I, I kind of want to figure that out. But I think it'll be substantially better because of it. And we kind of talked out what the output of that would be if Gabby interacted with this main villain earlier. And the output of that is actually better, too. So it, it this is kind of the cool part of the creative process. What I'm trying to share during these updates is not just the completion of things or an announcement or of a sale or something like that. I'm really announcing. <laughs> Friday, Gods Friday, and Martyrs yeah. by Pete Bauer, a yeah. great name <laughs> in literature. Yeah. No, I'm not just trying to promote things. I also just kind of want to share the real life kind of process of going through this stuff. So that's kind of slowed me down a little bit. I'm just now getting back to the rhythm of writing. I had my first more than 1,500 plus word day, which is... Way to go. Yeah. And Announcing <laughs> Peter Bauer's first... 1500 plus word day. Yeah, we're not promoting. Did you miss? <laughs> Did you Announcing miss? <laughs> Peter not. Bauer's stance on book promotion. <sighs> yeah, so, so we're not announcing. <laughs> announcing Peter Bauer is present here today. <laughs> That's an announcement. Well, I couldn't repeat what I said before because I already said it. Announcements have to be new and fresh, Dad. <laughs> I don't know. Have Didn't you, you study journalism have in you college? Seen car commercials? They're never new and fresh. Announcing <laughs> all right. a sale <laughs> Stop. on Stop. all Amazon Kindle books. You heard it here first. <laughs> That's not true. All, all books. You have no authority to do any of this. <laughs> all Kindle Stop. books are now 99 cents. I'm begging you to turn off that voice. <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> So. It may be present with us through the rest of this podcast. I fear that it's true. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it, Dorothea. Um, that's kind of what I'm going through. I My discipline's still a little off. Well, I disagree. Speaking as your child. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not my discipline of you. My discipline of writing is is off. So uh, Because I'm trying to do a lot of different things. We're redoing the book covers, and those are coming out really well. Uh, we're trying to do the podcast stuff. There's just a lot of things we're doing in preparation for you going to World Youth Day and things like that. So there's been a lot of distractions. And um, anyway, so I do need to get back to be more disciplined as a writer. So that's the update, and we'll continue plugging along. But today we wanted to talk about page turners. 
So what I try to do with my novels, and a lot of other writers do this as well, is that at the end of the chapter, they, they create a cliffhanger of a sort that you want to go to the next chapter. And that's where the page turner aspect comes from. It usually happens with thrillers and shorter books because it's not a totally immersive experience like a fantasy or anything like that. It's more of a, this is a thriller, here's the challenge, here's the obstacle, here's the scary person, and then are they going to get out of it alive kind of thing. Kind of like the old movie serials in the 30s and 40s. So one of our favorite movies actually happened to be kind of a page-turner film. Well, I'm sure it was when people were reading the screenplay for the first time. Right. It is an exhausting movie in the best way. Yes. And that movie is Mission Impossible 3. So if you have not seen Mission Impossible 3... We're going to ruin the whole thing. Yeah, so stop and go watch it because it's awesome. (laughs) But we do need to talk about it specifically to go through what we're talking about as far as structuring a story to be a page-turner. So... If you haven't seen it and you want to see it, stop the podcast, go watch it, and then come back. And they're back. Okay, good. (laughs) That was quick. Mission Impossible 3, for a little history, the first Mission Impossible movie came out, I think it was 96, and it was directed by Brian De Palma, and it's based on the TV series from the 60s and 70s, Mission Impossible. And that was a very successful movie. It starred Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, the main character. And... It had its own very kind of Brian De Palma-esque style. It was kind of like a suspense, more of a suspense movie than, a, than an action movie. Why don't you share some other movies that he's directed to give people an idea in case they haven't seen it? Uh, Brian De Palma directed Dress to Kill. He directed Blowout. He directed The Untouchables, Raising Cain. He's really great at suspenseful moments. So they he, almost have a film noir quality to them. Yeah. So that's his kind of style, and he was a good director to introduce, especially with the story they wrote uh, for Mission Impossible 1. Mission Impossible 2 was directed by John Woo, who is a, was a very famous Asian director, action director, and so he brought his style to the movie. I, I think it's probably the least successful of them, though. Yeah, it's... The thing about Mission Impossible 2 is that it has some cool action sequences, but the plot is kind of stupid. And I thought it was miscast in a lot of places. Yeah. So yeah, the villain. We talked about the need for a good villain. Mm-hmm. The villain. I. I don't. I hate to say this. I just don't like him as an actor. I don't yeah. think he brings a lot of what they were looking for to that character. John Woo loves the idea of. He did movies like Face Off and Hard Boiled. I think he did. He likes the idea of stories where you have kind of like two brothers, whether. Um, actual or kind of just relationship type like friends that are like brothers he likes to put those type of people in opposite contradictory situations mission impossible is also known for disguises so he took the idea of at one point in mission impossible 2 tom cruise is got a mask on as the villain and the villain has a mask on as tom cruise and they're both doing reconnaissance and information gathering against each other at the same time And then they both reveal themselves to be someone else or themselves, I guess, in that case. There were really cool elements about that from a storytelling perspective. But overall, it just seemed a little too much style over substance. I mean, at some point, you you have to believe the humanity behind the characters in order to be emotionally attached to them in movies. In Mission Impossible 2, it was, you never really got that. The relationship was kind of forced. And so you never really bought into the the danger of the, the female character in that movie. Yeah. So it's it's it does have some cool action sequences. Some of Tom Cruise's stunts are mind blowing as yeah, always. He's insane. Um, so if you want to check it out, like we're not gonna stop you, but if no, we're gonna stop you. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna jump to your door. 
But my recommendation. We have ways of knowing. <laughs> but my recommendation would be if you want to watch the whole series would be to start with the first one because it is a really interesting movie. But then watch the others knowing that it's a very different style and uh, it doesn't really exist in the same world. Right. And the movies following Mission Impossible 3, 4, and 5 uh, have been really great. Yeah. Mission Impossible 3 kind of reinvigorated the series. Isn't that J.J. Abrams thing? <laughs> that Honestly. Is. It seems to. <laughs> what he does. Directed by J.J. Abrams who reinvigorated Star Wars and Star Trek and everything else. In about, you know, 20 years, Marvel's going to come to J.J. Abrams and be like, all right, we oversaturated the market. We made huge mistakes. How do we reinvigorate? Yeah. And he's going to be like, all right, here's what you do. Yep. And the look and feel. I don't know if that's how he talks. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's exactly it. And the look and feel of all the future movies kind of match Mission Impossible 3. The style, the fast format, the... Just the the themes and the, I don't know, they all seem to be in the same universe, where the first two movies seem to be completely different types of movies. I agree. I think the reason for that is that the movies that have come out recently, 3, 4, and 5, are action movies. And the first movie really is a suspense. Yeah, yeah. So, Mission Impossible 3, this happened, when we first saw this, we were amazed at how much actually happens in this movie. Whenever you look at the clock and see how much time has passed, you're like, holy crap, they have done this much. It's been 10 minutes. And I know from a screenplay structure that the major points are usually about a half hour long. And you can break that into then two 15-minute sections. And if you want, break each 15-minute section into three five-minute sections. Very few people take those five-minute sections and turn them into full movie plot points. You know what I mean? Like they, what normally happens in five minutes in Mission Impossible 3, most people would take the whole movie or half a movie to show. It's amazing how much they fill. But I do think it's actually something that's kind of unique to cinema because you're able to convey so much more information with visuals than you are with words. So it would be harder, I think, for an author to take a book and be like, all right, I'm going to make these just shorter chapters because a book can be as long as you want it, whereas movies are usually pretty limited in their time format. And so like taking the chapters and making them shorter, you may not get all of the information that needs to get out there because you have to describe the situation. You have to explain what's happening. Whereas in a movie, it takes two seconds to show what's actually going to happen. Yeah. But I think what's a good lesson for even writers in this in this story, if you were to just look at the Mission Impossible 3 story as a story instead of a movie, then you would learn a lot about how much you can put into one overarching story. And you shouldn't be limited by going, oh my gosh, I've already gotten to this point. What next? Just just keep going. You know what I mean? I agree. You don't need to extend it out. Just keep going. Keep going. Or, you know, figure out where you want the end point to be and then think about as many obstacles as you can possibly put in the way. Yeah. And when I we watched this right before we were doing this podcast to refresh our mind about the story. And what's surprising to me is that this movie kind of follows the Raiders of the Lost Ark structure pretty closely in the sense that in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was you open up with this great sequence, you establish Indy's life, he goes on a mission, he succeeds, he gets the Ark, loses the Ark, gets the Ark. That's kind of the thing. This is kind of similar in that respect if you were to look at it a big picture. But what's different is that it compresses within those five-minute segments far more amazing storyline plots. And we can just go through it. So the movie opens up with Ethan Hunt in a chair, bound, handcuffed. Looks like he's been tortured. Yep. He's been told the first line in the movie is, we put an explosive charge in your head. Sound familiar? (laughs) 
So that's the opening. They also say sound familiar. Right. Like that's the first line. And what's great about opening it up at this moment is that the audience is immediately also unaware of anything that is going on. So you're immediately put in Tom Cruise's shoes because Philip Seymour Hoffman plays the bad guy, Owen Davian, and he's got a gun to someone's head who we obviously understand that Tom Cruise's character, this person matters to them. They're bound, they're gagged. He has a gun to them. He says, where's the rabbit's foot? And he's like, Ethan Hunt's like, I thought I gave you the rabbit's foot. And he's like, if you don't tell me where the rabbit's foot is in 10 seconds, I'm going to kill her. And so what's so amazing is as he, as he counts down, Ethan Hunt goes through all of these different versions of trying to get out of this, like pleads. I gave it to you. Bluffs like, oh, it's in Paris. And he's like, no, it's not in Paris. And then he's like, all right, let's, let's talk as gentlemen. I'm going to kill her anyway. And it's so awesome because you're in this moment where the problem is, you know, there's an explosive charge in his head. You know that this person that is being threatened to be killed is someone important. And he's in this really tough situation where he's coming out of a stupor like you as the audience going, what, what is going on? Philip Seymour Hoffman counts to 10 and shoots her. And that's the opening of the movie. And you're like, what? And then, and here's something that, that Michael Giacchino did with the music. In the first two movies, they shied away from one of the most amazing musical scores ever, which is the Mission Impossible score. Like they, dun, 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 right. In the first dun, movie, they only did that at the very end. At the very end, they did it once at the end of the movie at the climax. And in the second movie, they kind of weaved it. It was Hans Zimmer, so he kind of weaved it in here and there. But in this movie, they were like, no, we're going full bore Mission Impossible. This this theme is going to be everywhere. So they opened it up with this re, reinvigorated version of the song. And so that opening takes four minutes, almost our five minute segment. So the first four minutes, you realize that Tom Cruise is looking for something, a rabbit's foot. He's got an explosive device in his head. They just killed someone he really loved. And what's really cool, this person that he really loved, the next scene opens up. And well, after the opening credits. After the opening which credits. Which is also cool in Mission Impossible Land because they go through the whole plot of the story. If yes. you're paying attention, yes. you figure out everything that's going to happen. Right. And so then they the, the first shot after that is Tom Cruise and this woman who was killed, uh, obviously happening before, and it's their engagement party. And she's played by Michelle Monaghan. And that's such a great way to go back in time without the whole cheesy six months before or right. two days early or whatever, because she just died. And then the next time you see her, she's alive. Yeah. So they do this party, this engagement party. They establish relationships. Uh, they establish Tom Cruise's cover that he works for the Department of Transportation and all these other things. And so all of that is done. And in five minutes, right around the five minutes later, he gets a call. And it's a call that he knows and he recognizes is a call from the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force, his his company. So first five minutes, they establish the crisis. They go back, whatever time it is, and they establish his relationship. And you really love the girl. You love the family. You love everything. It looks like a fun party, honestly. Right. Like watching it, you're like, I want to be there. They In this really intelligent way, they show that he can read lips, which is comes in later. And it's just really fun. And so he's having this great time. And then he gets his call and he's like, I got to go to the store. He goes to the store. And the next five minutes is this mission that they want him to do, but he doesn't really do missions anymore. But one of his trainees is caught. And so in the first five minutes, he goes to the store, meets a coworker. They clandestinely talk about the mission. He gets a little disposable camera. It's actually the thing that says, that tells him the mission. And in five seconds, it'll destroy. And he decides to go on the mission. 
five minutes later. So that's like the first 13 minutes is the introduction. You, it's, you've got the, the attention grab right at the beginning and then you get to know everybody and, and it automatically pulls at your heartstrings because you just saw this girl die. Right, you know and where then, it's going to end, which is awful. And then you have this fun engagement party. You think it's going to be great and now Ethan's off on a mission. So around the 13 minute mark, they go off and they start to do prep for the mission and they go off and, and go actually to the location and do the main setting up for their action. So they're on site, so they're technically in the mission already, but they haven't started the rescue yet. Right, and they're establishing where the girl is who's being held captive, how many people are there, what kind of building it is, and things like that. So then at about 17 and a half minutes, the action sequence completely changes. Right, so Ethan Hunt goes in, saves the girl. I'll just make it short, but that whole action sequence is really awesome. Yeah, but he saves the girl and makes her part of the action sequence, which is really cool because she's an agent, right? So he gives her an adrenaline shot and then she's fighting right alongside him. So that's just a cool way to incorporate her into the story as well because if he had to like take her over his shoulders and then run through the building, I mean, that would have been fine, but it was cool to have her be part of the actual fighting. And what was really smart that J.J. Abrams does in this case is that the way that they act together in fighting together, Ethan Hunt and the female agent played by Carrie Russell, is that they move around as if they're dancing. I mean, it really does look like a dance when they're shooting and interacting and spinning around. It's it's so choreographed and so comfortable. It's kind of like, wow, these guys really are good and they really have worked together before. So they get out and they find out that there's a charge in her head. Sound familiar? (laughs) Well, again, this is before. So this is the first time that they've experienced this. So five minutes later, they get in a helicopter and they try to escape. There's this awesome, again, another great action sequence. They realize that to, to disable this charge, they actually have to use a defibrillator to basically kill her, but short out the thing in her head and then bring her back to life. And she's like, okay, do it. But as they're they're avoiding this other helicopter... They have a helicopter chase. They have a helicopter chase. Not many movies have a helicopter yeah. chase. <laughs> Through a wind farm, yeah. right? Which is really cool. And then, um, you know, he's trying to... He needs to do the defibrillator, but one girl and the team's holding it, and she almost gets pulled out of the, the helicopter through the chase. So she's holding onto it, which means he can't use it because he has to get her back in. All these time delays, all these time delays. Carrie Russell, she's screaming that her head's hurting, so you know that it's going to happen soon if they don't stop it. They finally get inside. They're about to charge it. It's 30-second charge, and with two seconds left... She dies. She dies. So... kind of gross, too. (laughs) It is kind of gross. I mean, her head doesn't, like, explode, but it's just a very micro thing, but inside it, it does kill her. So all of that happens in 26 minutes. That's a lot. That is a lot. And the amazing thing is that it really doesn't feel too fast. No. But it just moves. It just It's very impressive because yeah. it's hard to have that much happen and not feel like you're jumping from place to place. So most people, like a lot of people, when they're either looking at stories or movies, that whole sequence of getting the girl would be the movie. It would be the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Right? And she'd live at the end. And she'd live at the end. <laughs> but they had it happen, all of that in the first half hour. And it was a great way in a movie, especially, to establish his skills and his allegiances and the politics of his office and all these other things. So it was a really smart way to establish everything you needed to know for the next hour and a half. So they go back and get reprimanded for a mission that failed. But they find out that Carrie Russell's character sent Ethan Hunt a micro dot with an encrypted message on it. Which is just a spy thing. Right. So I, I, I don't I don't know if microdots exist outside of the Mission Impossible world. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, they used to exist in the old... I mean, it used to be a, a common thing in the 80s and 90s as far as spy thing goes. Really? 
In fiction or reality? In reality. There's like microfilm and stuff like that. Anyway. So then they find out about this main bad guy, Owen Davian. The guy who's responsible for ultimately killing Carrie Russell's character. Yes. And she was getting information on him. And they recovered some laptops and got some information. And it's the first time ever anyone was going to be able to know where this guy was, where he was going to be. Because he's that, he's that good at hiding out. So they know he's going to be in the Vatican. So they have a new mission. They have to break into the Vatican and kidnap this guy. How he gets into the Vatican is something they never really addressed. <laughs> He's like this ultimate bad guy, and he got an invitation to the Vatican. Yeah. But, I mean, it's it's just a presentation in the Vatican that he's attending some sort of highfalutin sort of thing. And it's just a, it's a reason to do this drop of getting information on the rabbit's foot, which Simon Pegg's character explains has to be so bad because it's someone's willing to pay so much from it that it's got to be something horrendously evil. And so they don't know what it is. They just know it's really, really dangerous. End of the world type stuff. Yeah, really. Michael Bay film. Actually, this one's J.J. Abrams. Yeah. You replace explosions with lens flares, and that's how you differentiate. (laughs) That's true. So in the next five minutes, they go on the mission, and they break into the Vatican. Literally five minutes after they're in the Vatican, you see Owen Davian for the first time. Five minutes later, they kidnap him. And five minutes later, they escape into a plane, and they have him captive. So all of that happened in 15, 20 minutes, which, again, could have been a whole nother movie, right? So they have him in a plane. They're just wasting content here. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so they have him in a plane, and, and all, what's so interesting is no matter how, how trapped Owen Davian is, all he's talking about is, like, what's your name? Because if you have anyone you love, I'm going to kill them, and I'm going to kill them, and I'm going to enjoy it, and I'm going to make sure they watch you die, but I'm going to make sure they scream your name before you die. I mean, he's just so evil. And he's like, oh, and you know that agent little girl, whatever? Nah, yeah, killing her, that was fun. That was just fun. And so Ethan Hunt's like... It's super creepy. It is super creepy. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was such a great actor. He really made it seem real. Yeah. And so Ethan Hunt threatens to throw him out of a plane. Almost does. They yell at Tom Cruise to stop. And they say, Ethan, Ethan. And so when they pull Owen Davian back into the plane, Philip Seymour Hoffman goes, What I'm selling and who I'm selling it to is the least of your problems, Ethan. And so now you know he knows him. Which is horrendous. Because you also know... That he has a wife that he loves. Mm-hmm. And you also know that she dies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is By the him. Mo- by him, right? <laughs> yeah. Again, awesome sequence. So that's the midpoint of the movie. They've gone on two complete missions within 60 minutes, which again, could be two complete movies. For the next five minutes, they go on a bridge to transport this guy. There's this awesome sequence where he gets away. The next sequence is Ethan Hunt knows his wife's now in jeopardy. Because the bad guy's on the loose. And free. And he finds out from his wife's brother that someone was calling looking for his wife. And so he's like, "Uh uh-oh. So then the next five minutes is him going to the hospital trying to get his wife, who is then drugged and kidnapped. And then the next five minutes is him coming outside. All the IMF forces are there to arrest him because of all this event that happened. And right as he's captured, he gets a call that says, from Philip Seymour Hoffman, that says, you have 48 hours from this second to deliver the rabbit's foot. Which he doesn't have. Which he doesn't have, but he he stole the briefcase with the location of the rabbit's foot from him at the Vatican. So he's like, you have my briefcase, you have 48 hours to steal the rabbit's foot and bring it to me or I kill your wife. And that's the exact moment he's arrested, bound, gagged, 
captured. So what they've done at the midpoint is that they've given him an impossible mission, again, and a ticking clock. And arrested him. And arrested him <laughs> and gagged him. Yeah, he can't even he can't defend move, himself. He can't talk, he can't explain. It really is brilliant when you're talking from story structure because you've put this guy in a horrible situation. He can't even explain his way out of it. So the next five minutes is a coworker who the one who asked him to join the mission, helps him escape. And he escapes, and then he goes to Shanghai. And the next five minutes is the crew showing up because his coworker told him about it, and they're there. And the next five minutes is them breaking into a building. So it's the second heist and the third mission mm-hmm. <laughs> in this one movie. So they break in. They get the rabbit's foot, another awesome action sequence in the streets of Shanghai. And then they go. He delivers the rabbit's foot, and then he's drugged, and he wakes up, and it's the beginning of the movie. Took a long time to get there. <laughs> right. But what's so interesting about it from a story perspective, now this is something, I don't know how we, you would just have to handle this differently in, in a novel. But what they did smartly in the movie is instead of replaying the whole sequence, they started it and then they cut to a scene of the other agents coming home and being questioned. And then you come back and it's right at the end. Ethan's wife dies. And then as he's kind of like trying to comprehend what just happened, the co-worker sits down and you realize he's the bad guy who's been helping Owen Davian. Never trust a mentor. Yes. In film. Yeah. Or life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So that's like plot point two. So then you find out his wife isn't dead. It was a trick. It was a trick. And it was, again, a mask on someone to make it look like his wife so they could make sure that he really stole the rabbit's foot. So now he has to go save his wife, escape from the other guy, avoid Owen Davian, and be free. So they go through this where he has to Also esca- capture Owen Davian, who yes. is a criminal. <laughs> yes. He escapes, but he has this thing in his head. And Risey's about to free his wife. It starts to go off, and Philip Seymour Hoffman's character is going to do exactly what he said on the plane. I'm going to kill you, I'm going to make your wife scream your name, and then I'm going to kill her in front of you, and that's what he plans on doing. And he starts to make that happen. It's very disturbing. It is. And then Tom Cruise ends up fighting through the pain and struggle of this thing going off and, you know, about to go off in his head. So he ends up killing Owen Davian, and then he needs his wife to kill him like he was going to do with Carrie Russell's character to short-circuit this bomb before he dies. She's a nurse. Unfortunately, they don't have a defibrillator in this random place in China. So they have to use, like, hardwired electrical cords. They turn on the power. Tom Cruise dies. Here's the great thing. He dies. Another ticking clock. Because he dies right as bad guys enter, and she has to hide with the gun. Her husband's dead. If she doesn't resuscitate him soon, he's forever dead. In the same time, she has to defend herself. She's not an agent. She has a gun. She's never used it before, right? All awesome obstacles. Like when you're looking at a story point, you have, those are amazingly complex layered obstacles. So she ends up shooting guys, brings him back to life, and then they they live happily ever after, really. Until the next movie. Until the next movie. (laughs) But you look at that, there's... So much happened. Right. That's that's the whole movie. You have three missions, two ticking clocks, right? You have a false betrayal and then a real betrayal. They have two break-ins. One they show, one they don't. There's like three escapes. Three escapes. One by the bad guy, two by them. Yeah. I mean, yeah, think it's, about it's all intense. the information, yeah. right? This is like probably the most you could pack into a story and make it work. And, and we talked about when we were watching it that in movie making, you really need to give an audience a break. So what's really interesting is during the second break-in, where Ethan Hunt has to break into this place to get the rabbit's foot, they don't show you that at all. 
they actually show the people waiting because as an audience, you need a break. You're like, yeah, a mental break Ugh. from this movie, which is exhausting. Right. So in, in novels, you'd have to handle that differently. There'd probably be some introspection in the character or something that they were dealing with internally to slow things down because the external was so intense. Or if you were, it depends if you're doing different third persons, you could also do the same thing and pull out of the main character's story and go into the other characters. Anyway, it's, it's just a great idea of don't limit yourself. This movie is a perfect example of pack as much information, as much quality thrills into your page turner as possible. Because every five minutes, literally, we timed it, almost every five minutes, something major happens. And almost every 15 minutes could be its own movie. And so they packed it's in. It's very impressive. It is. It is. And that's why this movie was so successful. And that's what set the standard when I talk about it kind of set the standard for the future movies that's how it did it because all of them are kind of like that what's great about the next movie is the basic theme is everything goes wrong like it's very funny every technical thing that they use breaks every plan fails and they still have to overcome all of it it's really really cool you know a thought occurred to me today when I was watching the movie and they depend so much on their tools and their tech and their spy craft and right. and it's it's fun because that's part of what makes the world enjoyable is all these little things and gadgets that they have but it was really interesting to me because the thought that came into my head and if you haven't seen the show Sherlock I'm spoiling season 2 for you the really cool thing in that show was that and we're talking the British version the right? British version yeah. Is that Moriarty, you know, is Sherlock Holmes' big nemesis enemy. He basically plans Sherlock's demise. And Sherlock is, like, trying to figure out how he does it. Like, what's going on? And at the end, Moriarty has this monologue where he's just like, he's like, you just want everything to be clever. He's like, when it's really much simpler than that. And you learn through flashbacks that he basically paid off everyone. And it's so simple. You take greed. And you didn't need all these gadgets and cleverness. He just took greed and manipulated it to his to what he needed right it was interesting to see how you have good versus evil portrayed in very different ways in those stories because in mission impossible at least in this movie it's very much dependent upon the technology that they have like if their masks didn't work they wouldn't have been able to grab philip seymour hoffman they wouldn't have been able to do a bunch of things that they did they wouldn't be able to fake ethan hunt that they killed his wife exactly And that's part of what makes the movie so cool to see is, oh, well, what if there was technology that could do this? And what if there was tech that could do that? But I also, being a character person, find it really cool. This is going to sound terrible, but I find it really cool when villains are powerful because they're manipulative. Right. Well, that's the scariest thing because they're... They don't need tech. They can use people without them even knowing they're being used. That's the scariest thing, right? Because you can't can't overcome that. You can't control that. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's the toughest. Because you can't, like, hack a person. Well, you could to death. But I'm talking, like, technology-wise. You can't break into a person and steal whatever you need. These people are being manipulated by other people. It's pretty, pretty clever. But anyway, so Mission Impossible 3 is just a great example of, as I said, not limiting yourself. Trying to fit as much quality action sequences and thrills and obstacles and, like I said, ticking clocks and bombs and break-ins. I mean, they did everything in that movie. It's insane. It's amazing. And so if you're going to write a page-turner, you have to kind of think like that. You have to kind of think, how many possible obstacles can I put in their way? How many hurdles can I make them jump over? How many near-death experiences do they have to face? And all of that has to be told in a way that that you actually believe. I mean, in spite of 
the amazingness <laughs> of Mission Impossible 3, you kind of believe it in that world. It fits that world. You do. It's a good lesson if you want to watch a movie to kind of understand Paige Turner's structure, whether in movies or any sort of storytelling, movies, novels, anything. That's a great example of just kind of looking at it and going, this is how it can actually be pulled off. There's a lot of people who try to do this and they, they don't pull it off because the logic fails or the characters aren't believable or the escapes aren't believable. I mean, at one point in this movie, they're doing math on a window to try mm-hmm. to figure out how to get into a building. And it's, and so, it's so great because it brought it down to, no, this is, this is science, people. This well, they're is, also really smart. Right. I, it's one of my favorite scenes in Apollo 13, actually, is when they're all doing math because they're trying to figure out some calculations so they can get home. Right. And they're like, well, my brain's a little fuzzy, so I need you to check this. And then they have like 13 mathematicians checking like these intense, complicated mathematic algorithms. Right. And I love that scene because it just goes to show you. And I think it's an important lesson, especially this day and age with all the technology that we have right is that at the end of the day you have to rely on yourself because they had tech that sent them up into space and when it went wrong they had only themselves to figure out a way to get back home doesn't matter how advanced technology is it can always fail nothing is foolproof i think it's an important lesson you know every time i'm just waiting for the next thing to happen honestly because every time mankind's hubris is like oh we've created this perfect technology like titanic was the unsinkable ship and, uh, and there was so much hubris involved in that. Because didn't they get like iceberg warnings yeah. that they ignored? Yeah. Like hubris of mankind. You, you got to rely on yourself. So it's cool. This is completely unrelated. But it's cool to, uh, to see how smart they genuinely are. Like how they speak a bunch of different languages. And, and that they can do like these complex mathematic algorithms on a window in China. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what kind of works in this, in this story from a movie perspective that I think you would have to address differently in a novel is the precision that they have. Because visually, it's very easy to express competence through precision. And in a novel, you'd have to do that differently. But you're just looking for cues to go, I get it, I buy it. Because these guys would go through this stuff and it, they were never uninjured. They were. That's one thing with Gabby is she gets beat up a lot. I mean, she ends up in the hospital a lot in this in this novel series. You know, the doctors might think her dad was beating her if they didn't know her so well. <laughs> I know. Because I wanted the consequences to be real. And in, in these movies, that's one thing I don't like is in some of the Bond movies. Well, the later ones, it does. But the earlier ones, he was kind of invincible, you know, and that kind of detracted from the, the effectiveness of it. But what's so nice about this movie is that everything is really, really believable in its in its own world. And they did an amazingly efficient job of establishing a relationship with people you care about that you've never met. I mean, in five minutes, you care about their relationship. You believe them. You believe they're in love. And later on in the movie, they have another five minutes where it, it takes the relationship to another level. And so in 10 minutes out of 120 minutes, you fully invested in this couple. And it's just, it's really effective storytelling. I would love to get the script, the screenplay of that and just read it, you know, just to see how it reads, if it reads as effectively as it does. Well, I am such a nerd. I always want to read screenplays anyway, because some screenplays are really beautifully written. They're not as dry as you would think that they would be like, okay, cut to action sequence. Some of them convey emotion in a very short amount of text. So I always like reading that stuff anyway. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, this is one thing I loved about Shakespeare is how effective he was at language. Like one of my favorite quotes is, I, don't, I may be paraphrasing it a little bit, but basically they said, he has the patience of statues. That says everything, mm-hmm. right? That says everything about patience right there. All the world's a stage. Yeah, so right. I mean, he's so brilliant at taking a single 
thought and making it so crystal clear in so few words, you know? So hopefully, as a writer, you would be able to convey these kind of in the shortest way possible, especially in a thriller sort of book, this compressed action sequence sort of world that you'd be able to convey in the shortest time possible those emotional connections necessary to to make you feel for the character and be emotionally invested with them. Anyway, that's kind of our podcast on page turners from a uh, cinematic perspective. It's very, very, very cool to, to see stories like this. Yeah, it's just nice to see artists do things really well you know Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter what art so it's just fun to to see artists succeed and i think mission impossible for what it was trying to do it's not you know an academy award-winning movie it's not trying to be that but for what it was trying to do it really set a new level a new standard for what is a successful thriller and a successful action movie but you know the thing is not all academy award-winning movies are enjoyable and this one definitely is so I'm I'm glad that that it was as successful as it was. Yep. So check it out. I mean, I hope you did before you listened to this episode, but... (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. Having checked it out, I think you'll agree with us that that's a successful page turner. Anyway, so uh, that's it for this podcast. If you would like to comment, please comment in the comment section on the blog or... Or feel free to rate us on iTunes. That's right. Or you can email me at pete at petebowerbooks.com. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) All right. So, Dorothea, that is it for this episode. Not yet. No? No. Why? Hi, Barbie. Uh, (laughs) Our our most dedicated fan, Barbie. Why do you, why must you, is it still an an archaic term to say shout out? Why why do you shout out to Barbie every episode? Because she likes it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess that's good enough. I mean, this podcast is just for her anyway. So what are we thinking about? Anyway, um, we are very grateful for you guys listening this time, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye.